thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran. On January 17th, 1969, a fighter pilot ejected near the border of North Vietnam and Laos. The series of events that followed are almost beyond belief. The high-speed ejection had caused my limbs to flail so violently that uh, both elbows were dislocated and the forearms were pushed about halfway up on the inside of each arm. It's a story of tragedy, courage, and valor, told by the men who lived through two of the most infamous days of the Vietnam Air War. 3.30 in the morning, my alarm went off, and I got out for one of the damnedest days I ever saw in my whole life. Harry is a podcast that tells this incredible story. Search Harry, H-A-I-R-Y, on all major platforms or on our website, www.harrystories.com. This is the Fighter Pilot Podcast, episode 101. This week, the Century Series kicks off with a look at the early 50s interceptor whose pilots were trained to launch nuclear-tipped missiles at invading Soviet bombers, possibly ram them as a last resort, and even to fly an anticipated one-way mission to nuke the Soviet Union. Hang on, because it's about to get real. Strap in for the Fighter Pilot Podcast, the internet radio show that explores the fascinating world of air combat, the aircraft, the weapon systems, and most importantly, the people. Now, here's your host, retired U.S. Navy fighter pilot, Vincent Aiello. Welcome to the show. I am your host, Jello, and we will get to the McDonnell F-101 voodoo with retired Royal Canadian Air Force Major John Stacy in just a bit. And in fact, last week's guest, Bruce Gordon, will be along in a bit to uh, be our co-host. But anyway, Happy New Year, I guess, if I'm still allowed to say that halfway through the month. I hope 2021 is off to a great start and treating everyone fairly. As for us, man, we actually had a nice little late Christmas present. We found out that, in fact, we are, according to Chartable, the number one Apple podcast for aviation in the United States. And that's quite a treat because there's some big names on that list. So, yeah, we're having a good time, still putting out good content. And this is the Century Series, as you know, episodes 101 through 106. This particular episode is going to be a bit longer, so tell you what, let's keep the announcements short, just a couple listener questions, and then we'll get to it. All right, first, let's start with a phone call. Hello, Vincent. My name is Chris Via. I'm here in Goodyear, Arizona. I think I have a correction. I was looking at your YouTube video. I'm the only real pilot to get three kills in the last 40 years, but I was in the 555th Triple Nickel during the first Gulf War. If you look up Captain Tom Dietz, I was his assistant crew chief on the F-15 at Luke. He subsequently went to Bitburg, deployed to the Gulf War, and shot down three aircraft during the Gulf War as well. So thank you, and have a great day. 
All right, Chris. Yep, you're right. And I've definitely heard on social media all the other folks saying, don't forget Sharky Ward from the Falklands and everything else. But I mean, come on. I need a compelling title for the video, right? I can't put one of the many real... I mean, Ed Harris started it. Is that a good argument? I don't know. But anyway... We wanted a compelling title, and if nothing else, you know, the funny thing is, the way YouTube works is if I put something a little controversial, either in the title or somewhere else, more people comment on it, and then it gets put in front of more people, and so more people view it, which means they see their advertisements, and we get a little more revenue. So I'm not going to claim it's totally on purpose, but anyway, you get the idea. All right. Next, let's take an email. David says, in the F-35 episode, I believe, starting the jet was described as almost as easy as just pushing a button. I understand that a jet such as the F-A-18 is quite a bit older than the F-35, but what are the reasons that starting a jet in the 90s era is not as simple? Well, you know, first off, David, good question. Secondly, the F-18 is more like 70s era, although the Super Hornet does still have the same startup, and my guess is it was working, so why mess with it? You know, tech has advanced a lot in 30 years. I mean, the F-16, actually, you flip the JFS switch on it, and it's going to start both the auxiliary power and the engine, so it's a little closer to the F-35. But in the end, short answer is, I don't know. And my guess is that maybe the technology was such that that just made the most sense for a twin engine aircraft like the F-18, but also maybe they wanted something where you could just start one engine or the other. So yes, things have definitely gotten easier, but to your point, the F-35 is a little bit more advanced than the F-18 and a little simpler to start, sounds like. All right, let's take another phone call. Hey, Jello, my name is Aaron from PA. I just wanted to know how the Navy gets new equipment. So in reference to the Block 3 Super Hornet or the uh, F-35C, how does the Navy pick which squadrons transition first or next and so on and so forth? Thanks. All right, Darren. Well, thanks first off for your patience because I've been sitting on this question, I think since last October. And while I had an idea, I was looking for an expert and I put it to a friend of mine who works over at CNAF. And if I mentioned him, you would probably remember his name from news, but I'll leave it at that. At any rate, he told me that the air boss is ultimately the one who makes the decision on the final master aviation plan or what they call the map. As the name implies, I used to see these when I was in the Navy. It's just this great big basically calendar kind of thing with uh, months and years across the top and squadrons along the side. It said who was doing what and when. So if you were deploying, it was on there roughly. If you were transitioning, if you were disestablishing, whatever you were doing. And so when I asked my source, okay, sure, but you know, there's still a function of like, for example, I was in VFA 86 in Jacksonville, Florida. And when they moved up to Beaufort, they, and uh, I should say, you know, those two squadrons, 86 and 82 later on, I'd already left, but later on, one of those two squadrons had to disestablish and they ended up keeping VFA 86 with its older jets and getting rid of VFA 82 and sending their jets to 86. So it didn't make much sense. And in the end, uh, what my source tells me is that you've got the different people who are involved with different things and whether it's just, Hey, that was the squadron I was in. I don't think it's that, but I think it's a function of, Hey, these jets need to go over here anyway. And it makes sense to do this or that. So I don't know. Clearly, there is rhyme or reason to the folks that live that life, but for the rest of us, it does seem a little arbitrary. I agree with you there, Darren. All right, finally, an email from Derek. Oh, let's see. We've had David, Darren, and Derek today. Excellent. All right, planes drop stuff like empty fuel tanks, rocket pods, etc., to get more aerodynamic. 
Has anything like that been dropped as a weapon, like maybe to take out a truck or a small building or so? Well, you know what, Derek, I think you've been watching uh, Behind Enemy Lines a little bit. Remember, they dropped the fuel tank there to create a big IR decoy. Of course, it wouldn't have had fuel left in it. You burn that first. And also, it wouldn't have gone thunk when it hits the ground like a metal piece. It's fiberglass, essentially. The short answer is no. And that's because we don't have ballistics in the jet to pickle something off like that and to have it hit where we expect it to hit. Now we have ballistics for all the different bombs with all the different fins, and those are all in there, but no, you don't have it for rocket pods or drop tanks. And in fact, it's not been tested. And so when you do release those, generally speaking, you need to be in fairly benign flight. Yeah, it'll probably come off in a dive or pulling G's or something, but they just never tested it. And so they want you to release those things in the parameters they did test. And generally that's fairly benign flying. All right, good question. All right. Well, that will do it for listener questions for this week. Thank you for submitting them as always. And we have a lot built up since we didn't answer too many of those over the last several episodes. So we'll try to get to the rest of those as soon as we can. Now, I bet you're wondering what happened to our guest co-host we mentioned. He was on last week's episode on the Happy Hour Replay, and we talked about him at the top of this show. Well, not to worry. Bruce Gordon is here. I just didn't want to make him suffer through all the announcements and formalities and all that. How's it going, Bruce? Welcome back. It's doing fine. Going great here. (laughs) Well, everybody really loved your happy hour uh, intermission with us, so uh, we're glad to have you back. Well, I love to talk flying stories. I'm now living in Kentucky, and uh, it's great out here. Okay. Well, as I learned from you last time, not only do you have a great book, Spirit of Attack, but you have extensive flying experience in a variety of aircraft, including the Century Series. But can you remind us, what's your experience with today's episode subject? And that's the McDonnell F-101 Voodoo. Well, while I never did fly the F-101 Voodoo, it had the same radar system that I had back in the old F-102. Then I went to the F-106. Okay. I had one case where I was the target for F-101s during an exercise, and it turned out that I was in exactly a place where the F-101 had a weakness, which was high-altitude, high-speed chases. Uh-huh. I was designated to be... a supersonic target, high altitude for the F-101. So to make a long story short, I flew at uh, Mach 1.2. So I barely supersonic. To me, I was in minimum afterburner. The F-106 could have gone Mach 2. But instead, I was going at Mach 1.2. And I was about 45,000 feet. And the F-106 could easily fly higher than that. But that combination was very bad against four F-101s that were committed against me for stern tail chases. And they were unable to catch me because every time they started to pull up, they would lose their airspeed and they would fall out of their attack. So that was one weakness of the F-101. Okay. Uh, I'll talk about the strengths of the F-101 later. Okay. Well, on that note, we'll hear from our guest, John Stacy Stace, all about the strengths and weaknesses and performance and missiles, and we'll get all to it. So why don't we go with the interview? 
All right, well, Century Series begins, and we have John Stacy joining us to talk all about the F101 Voodoo. How are you doing today, John? I'm doing really well, thanks, uh, Vince. Oh, great. Well, where are you uh, calling in from today? I'm in North Bay, Ontario, in Canada. North Bay is the home of uh, Canada's underground NORAD complex, uh, similar to the Cheyenne Mountain complex uh, in Colorado. And I was stationed here in the Air Force uh, twice and uh, retired here and uh, pursued a second career flying for Air Canada. Ah. Not based here in North Bay, but living in North Bay. Oh, fantastic. Well, we just uh, a couple of days before Christmas had a little bonus episode about the NORAD Santa tracker. So that fits right in nicely. <laughs> right on. Okay, great. Well, let's talk about the F-101, but we always start with our guests so we can get to know you. Where are you from? Tell us a little bit about your college education, maybe, and then your military highlights. All righty. Well, I grew up in a, a residential suburb of Montreal in Quebec. And I went to university at Canada's Royal Military College and graduated from there in 1978 with a degree in civil engineering. Then never used my civil engineering. (laughs) Went on to uh, spend the rest of my life flying airplanes. My first operational tour was on the uh, F-101 Voodoo, uh, based in Bagotville, Quebec. I was uh, dual qualified on the Voodoo and the T-33 Silver Star at that time. Okay. When we retired the Voodoo in 1984, I went on to uh, instruct ab initio pilots out in Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan on the uh, CT-114 Tudor, which is the same jet that the uh, Snowbirds fly. That's right. And I listened to your podcast with uh, Scratch and really enjoyed that and brought back a lot of memories of flying that little airplane. Oh, great. After that, I did a uh, tour here in North Bay at Fighter Group Canadian NORAD Region Headquarters flying the BD-5D, as we called it, the big desk, five drawers. <laughs> I wondered. I was searching my memory for that one. I thought, ooh, you have to explain it. All right, you got me on that one. Okay. I also did some T-33 support flying with 414 Electronic Warfare Squadron, which was still based here at that time. Oh, good. After my uh, headquarters tour, I uh, trained on the F-18 and flew operationally over in Baden-Solingen, Germany. Oh on uh, two different squadrons, 421 and 439 TAC fighter squadrons. We closed out our base in Germany in 1993, and I was posted back to Cold Lake, Alberta, to instruct on the F-5, the Canadian F-5, on the basic fighter pilot course, a six-month course uh, prior to guys going on to the F-18. And lastly, uh, came back here to Fighter Group Canadian NORAD Region Headquarters for the last two and a half years of my career. Again, I was able to fly part-time some of the time, at least, on the uh, CF-5. We had actually retired the CF-5 from operational service, but we were marketing it to try and sell it. And actually had some pretty fun trips uh, on that and uh, a lot of freedom to just fly, you know, do things I wanted to do when I was flying it out of uh, Bristol Aerospace out in Winnipeg, Manitoba. Oh, wow. Ended my career with a little over 3,500 hours total, uh, all but 31 of them on ejection seat airplanes. I had uh, 31 hours on the Beechcraft Musketeer as part of my initial pilot (laughs) selection training. Okay. That's the overall. The real highlights of my career, uh, the things I'm sort of most proud of, I guess, in a lot of ways, were uh, I became an instrument check pilot when I was uh, flying the Voodoo, and I completed the tactical leadership program in Florence, Belgium, when I was flying the F-18. Oh. Outstanding. Those were kind of feathers in my cap. Sure. I also got to fly with two of my brothers. Uh, Really? Yeah. My older brother, Mike, uh, who's four years older than me, is also a Voodoo pilot and an F-18 pilot. Oh. And uh, he actually flew one of my very first Voodoo flights, one of my very first T-33 flights, my very first Hornet flight, 
And he was my commanding officer on 439 Squadron for a year. So we got to fly together there. That was really cool. They asked us if it was okay for him to be my CEO, you know? And I just shrugged my shoulders and said, hey, he's been bossing me around ever since I was a kid. Nothing changes, you know? Oh, boy. I hope he didn't give you any uh, insubordination grief, though. You know, you can't get away with like you can in a household. No, that's right, eh? I kept my nose clean. <laughs> oh, boy. Well, that's quite a litany of experiences there, John. Did you end up retiring, I presume? Yeah, I retired after um, flying for about 19 and a half years. And, of course, my time at the Royal Military College was pensionable time. So my total okay. service was just under 25 years. Uh, retired at the age of 42 with a pension and, uh, like I say, went on to a second career uh, flying for Air Canada. Wow, that's great. What was your rank at retirement? A major. This is what happens when I don't spend time to get to know you better before we start recording tape is I have to take notes <laughs> so I can uh, <laughs> keep track of all this. And I didn't even ask you, did you guys play the call sign game? Uh, we'll talk about how you got it later, but do you have a call sign? Well, yeah, I do. My call sign was simply Stace. We can get into that later, but it was basically drop the Y off my last name and, uh, right. and it was my call sign and I managed to hang on to it for my whole career. <laughs> Great. So, Stace, I want to start back at the beginning because we do have a lot of listeners who are aspiring pilots, and they often ask about degree selection. And so you made a comment about civil engineering, but that you never used it. And I just wanted to ask you, did you know that you wanted to be a pilot when you went into college? Yes. I knew I was going to get the training, or at least the opportunity to train, before I even started. I also knew that there were no guarantees, you know, I might get into pilot training and not be able to do it or get airsick all the time and have to withdraw, you know. So mm -hmm. my selection of a civil engineering degree was, it was something I enjoyed, that type of thing, drafting and drawing and designing and whatnot. Sure. And I thought, well, if the whole pilot thing doesn't work out, I want to have something useful to, you know, to fall back on. And I guess that's what I was hoping you would say is you found something that seemed to resonate with you as an individual, right? For other people, it could be something different, but it was also technical. And I'm guessing a lot of it was you learning to think things through and stick to schedules and get things done. I mean, there's a lot more to a degree than just the actual study, I would say. There's a lot of maturing that happens along with it. And in the technical fields, I feel like, are maybe a little better in that regard for people who want to be pilots. Yeah, well, I'd, you know, I think I'd agree with that. And uh, you're absolutely right, you know, about going through a degree a program, especially at a, a university like the Royal Military College. And I'm sure it's the same at West Point or Annapolis, um, you know, or the United States Air Force Academy, where the guys have so many other things on their plates besides their academics, mm -hmm. that it becomes a real challenge to uh, devote the time to your studies. You have to be very efficient with things. Doing a, a degree in civil engineering, I said I never used it, but I think I did use it in a lot of ways. You know, I right. I learned how to problem solve and I learned how to prioritize and That's right. you know those types of things. Yeah. Yeah, good stuff. Okay. Well, again, we do have a lot of listeners that wonder if should they take a technical degree or something else. We like to provide them a little extra information if we can. So, all right. Well, with that backdrop, Stace, why don't we get right into the Voodoo? And I have to admit, this is an aircraft I'm not particularly familiar with. So I do have a team of folks that help with the show and they provided me a little background data sheet. And I believe I forwarded that to you so you'd know where I was getting my information. But yeah. I just think it's interesting to see where this began. So take us back, if you would, to the 1950s and some of the mindset for the requirements of what ultimately became the F-101. 
Yeah, well, this wasn't something I was familiar with when I was flying either. You know, I was just a young fighter pilot with my hair on fire. You know, like, I don't need to know how it's built. I just need to know how to fly it, right? But I did find it fascinating as well to look at its history. And you said, go back to the 1950s. In fact, the original XF-88 flew its first flight in 1948. Oh, wow. This was a um, an airplane that was developed, started development immediately after the Second World War. The requirements were changing so rapidly, uh, you know, at least the perceived requirements, you know, by the Pentagon and what have you, with respect to defense and uh, the Soviets and what have you. It started out as a penetration fighter, bomber escort, that is, mm-hmm. a single seat, you know, with uh, Westinghouse turbojets, no afterburner. Those rapidly changing requirements, uh, you know, saw it. The F become the F-101A, go from a bomber escort to an interceptor, then back to a bomber escort, and then to a fighter bomber, which would carry one tactical nuke on a one-way mission, expecting the guys to have to eject behind enemy lines. That's asking a lot of a pilot. When you, you, you know, when you're training, knowing that that's, you're done, you know? Like, yeah. Oof. You're not going to get a real friendly reception. Uh, no, I wouldn't think so. <laughs> And then eventually uh, back to uh, the final design of the uh, F-101B in the form of a two-seat interceptor. You know, uh, it was a long process. I don't know. I can't remember exactly the date that the F-101B, the first one of those, flew. But that was the essentially primary model. Is that fair to say? Yeah. Although the one variant was the Recce F-101. There were quite a few of those uh, produced, and they're the only ones who actually saw combat in Vietnam. And some of them, you know, ended up getting shot down over there as well. But uh, they were not a bad, you know, Recce bird at the time. You know, they could go in fast and they get out fast. Being a, you know, a twin engine, there was one incident I read about where the guy actually lost one of his engines. He got hit by Ground fire going into Recce, a, a target that had been bombed earlier, and uh, he lost one engine, but he was able to recover back to home base on that single engine. Wow. Yeah, that's why it's good to have a spare engine, as, as <laughs> the single engine uh, fighters like to say. You twin engine guys, you have a spare engine. So Yeah, bingo. <laughs> I'll take it. I guess you spent most of your career, it sounds like, in twin engine aircraft. Well, the T-33, of course, is single engine, and the Tudor is a single engine. That's but, right. uh, yeah, the my, Tudor. My, yeah. my fighters were all twin engines. Yeah. Okay. We'll touch on the variants in a moment, but with all those, was there one particular primary role or bread-and-butter role of the Voodoo, would you say? Well, yeah. The bomber interceptor was what it really became known for. The most variants built were the, that role with the two-seat, you know, big radar in the nose and... Uh, mm-hmm designed to take out bombers coming over to uh, wreak havoc on North America. All right. Now, of the different variants that we talked about, and I read here that there was also an EF-101 version, so kind of an early electric voodoo, they called it. Which ones did you have a chance to fly? I flew the uh, the B and the F. Okay. The F was the twin controls. They, they built a bunch of them for training. So there was a stick and throttle in the backseat and most of the flight instruments so that you could train pilots. An instructor pilot could be in the back seat and see exactly what the (laughs) student was doing in the front seat. And we also did our instrument training back there. Yeah. Yeah. Or brothers could fly together that way. So. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Pilots didn't really like getting into the back seat of the bees because all they had was a radar scope and 
you know, it just kind of felt like, holy crap, you know, it's like being in the trunk of a car. <laughs> now, in that regard, in the backseat of the bees, were they pilots like the early F-4s in the Air Force? Or were they like what we would call a Wizzo or an NFO? Yeah, they were Wizzos. In Canada, they were trained as navigators. Okay. They earned their navigator wings. And then uh, from there, you know, some of them were posted to the voodoo. And they went through the course to become uh, the scope wizards, we called them. We didn't call them Wizzos. We called them scope wizards. Okay. I often said, it's a good thing you know, the pilots knew how to navigate because the navigators didn't. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's not very nice. <laughs> yeah, well, they, they just concentrated entirely on the whole scope thing, you know, and um, and they didn't have the instruments in the back really to do any navigating in the zoo. I, you know? like if, I mean, well, all our navigation was done on the TACAN anyways, you know, or the radar or whatever. Yeah. And so the F model, as you said, had the training backseat, if you will, with the stick and throttles. When you had the F-18, I don't know that much about the Canadian F-18s, but the B or D models that you had, well, the B was always a trainer, but did you have the Ds? Yeah, we had A's and B's. And the B's were, uh, they were pretty much, you had everything in the back seat to fly the airplane. Uh, let's say the pilot in the front seat became incapacitated for whatever reason. Right. The pilot in the back seat could bring it back and land it, no problem. Uh, right. And I think the B was always intended as a trainer, but then the FA-18D and then the Super Hornet F, they are reconfigurable. So the point I was trying to make, maybe not that important of a point, is where you had the F-101 B or F, which were different aircraft, but for the trainer role, then for us, we could just take the same aircraft and reconfigure it in the D and F Hornets. Right, I see. Right. So the F-101F, the dual control, had all the same capabilities as the B. It had a scope in it and all the stuff that the scope wizard needed to do his job. So uh, they could load the weapons onto that F, uh, the same as on the B, and it could be taken out and used in a situation that required it. Yeah. Well, I probably spent too much time trying to explain that, like a long road to a small house. But anyway, (laughs) all right, we got through that. In the front seat, were the B and the F essentially the same? Yeah, there was no difference. Okay. Okay. So did you have a particular favorite or was it transparent once you were in the front? Yeah, it was pretty much transparent. I mean, more often than not, the Fs were used for training uh, with another pilot in the back. Mm -hmm. So that meant you weren't really doing the job per se. You were doing pilot training or whatever, or proficiency or a check ride or something. Sure. Now, who all flew countrywise the F-101? Well, the Americans, of course, and uh, Canada. And I only found out uh, very recently that the Taiwanese flew some voodoos. I think they were recce versions. I could be wrong there. You know, up until just within the last day or two, I thought Canada and the U.S. were the only countries that ever flew the voodoo. Yeah, I think I saw here, and I can't find it suddenly while uh, we're trying to do it, but I think I saw that it was a couple of the reconnaissance versions that were sent to Taiwan. And and they also say here that NASA flew it, but I guess that's still the U.S. Yeah. All right. I read that it besides uh, Vietnam, I didn't know about that, but I guess it did fly over Cuba during the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962. That's right. Yeah. It was doing stuff. I saw actually saw a picture that one of them took of a ship, and uh, it pointed out the uh, missile like missile coffins, like surface-to-air missile coffins that were on the ship. Oh, wow. They were definitely providing good intel by doing that. Some of the original versions of the A's that were uh, designed for the strike, the nuclear strike, were actually stationed over in England as well, in Britain, for a a while. They were replaced by the F-4 at some point in the early 60s, I think, or something like that. Gotcha. Let's talk about 
the way it looks and maybe why it looks the way it does, if possible. Now, if this was designed as early as the 40s, or at least the predecessors of it, then of course, I think we can give it some grace because it's an old design, but it certainly looks a little different than some of the modern fighters, I would say. Oh, yeah. Well, uh, definitely. I mean, it's really funny. You know, if you look at a picture of the original XF-88, you sort of go, well, that looks kind of like a voodoo, you know? It's got these little triangular intakes and the tail that kind of goes out to like a stingray tail almost, you know, with the vertical stab mounted like way back, the engine stopping like way forward of that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Why the F-101 ended up looking like it does when you compare it to that original XF-88 is there's a number of reasons. And they took that initial design. It was a single seat, you know, long range bomber escort. Mm -hmm. They put this big ass radar in the nose. So the nose became bigger and longer. They added a second seat for the radar operator. So the whole front area of the fuselage became longer. They put bigger engines in it, like way bigger than the original ones, with even bigger afterburners. And rather than redesign the airplane to like fit most of the afterburner inside, which is the way most airplanes are, they just stuck eight feet of afterburner can out the back of the airplane. So, you know, they increased the size of those triangular intakes because they were finding they were having trouble with, you know, engine stall and stuff. Mm -hmm. And they raised the horizontal stab to the top of that T-tail the vertical stab in an attempt mm-hmm. to alleviate the pitch-up problem that they had identified on the Douglas Skyrocket, mm-hmm. which had a similar sort of wing-tail configuration to the XF-88. And uh, we'll talk about the pitch-up thing, I'm sure, later. Okay, yeah. In fact, I have a listener question about that as well, so we'll certainly get to it. All right, how about we talk about weapons? What kind of armament did it carry? The heart and soul of the armament was the Hughes MG-13 fire control radar. It was like the actual missiles and rockets, well, the rockets especially, not so much the missiles, but and the radar sort of, they had to go hand in hand. They were like designed to work together. It was the um, MG-13 that put us into position to release the Air-2A rocket. And the Air-2A rocket was our big weapon. It was our number one weapon. So we carried two of those. It was the Douglas Air 2A Genie rocket. It was a nuclear rocket, a 1.5 kiloton warhead. Which is just crazy, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay. yeah. Like it, you think about it, it's kind of like, ooh, that's, uh, do I want that slung under my belly or, you know, yeah. internally? Yep. The other weapon we carried were two Hughes uh, AIM 4 Delta Falcon heat seeking missiles. The Genies were carried internally on one side of a rotating armament door, and the uh, in fours, the Falcons were carried externally, semi-recessed, on the other side of that door on rails, of course, that would extend to allow the missile to uh, acquire the target to fire. Wow. And they were fired in salvo to increase the PK, which was very, very low. <laughs> uh, probability of kill. Okay. Plus, maybe yeah. if they're... Aren't those fairly large rockets, the Falcons, or missiles, I should say? They were pretty big around, but they were short. Like, if you look at a picture comparing them to the Sparrow, or not the Sparrow, but the uh, Sidewinder, let's say. Uh, the mm-hmm. Sidewinder is close to two times as long as the uh, Falcon was. Oh, wow. Interesting. Okay. And we also had one other way to kill uh, bears in our back pocket. It was called the Elevator Pass. <laughs> oh? You can just imagine what I'm talking about. Like, they actually briefed this, you know, when you've fired your two genies and you've fired your... AIM-4s, if you haven't run out of gas and there's still bombers up there, just fucking do a, a head-on and take out his vertical tail and he'll crash. 
Oh, dear. Yeah. Very high PK, but also a very low probability of survival. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we talked about this with Bruce Gordon, and I, it's a hard thing to fathom, giving that order. But I guess, on the other hand, it's kind of the duty of a soldier, if I may categorize military people in that way, because yeah. maybe you're going to save a city if that is a nuclear yeah. uh, bomber. So you also had guns as well, right? Negative. The F-101B lost the four 20-millimeter cannons. Okay. It was only in the A models. I would have traded my AIM-4 Deltas for four 20-millimeter cannons any day of the week, <laughs> let me yeah. tell you. I mean, the Air 2A in particular was... Um, it was a pretty lethal weapon. It, like I say, a 1.5 kiloton warhead. It would accelerate to Mach 3.3 in like two seconds after launch. Its time of flight was about 12 seconds. So it would travel close to six nautical miles downrange. And it had a lethal radius of just under 1,000 feet. And that sounds small to me. You know, 1.5 kiloton, I think, geez, only 1,000 feet. But mm-hmm. if you were firing that into a bomber formation, there's a good chance you might take several down. Yeah. Was that the tactic was, okay, we're going to maneuver to this range and based on the time of flight, then it should go. I mean, I'm guessing it wasn't just lob it in there and see what happened. Did you guys have some sort of method for if you're at this range at this altitude or this angle off the tail, this is when you should fire? Well, in a sense, the MG-13 radar did it all for us. Oh, okay. The guy in the backseat would you know, acquire the target on the radar, and uh, when he got within range to lock onto it, he would. He had some calls that he would make as he was doing that. His final call would be, your dot. So he's working with a B scope in the back seat, and we had an F scope in the front seat. And it basically was just a couple of concentric rings. And when he gave us the dot, a dot would appear in the F scope, and we had to maneuver that dot into the middle of the tiniest circle. And once it was in there, we would just mash the triggers or trigger Mm -hmm. and keep that dot there. And when the MG-13 figured out we were at the right spot, it would release the weapon. Oh, wow. So the geometry of the intercept was all figured out by the MG-13, you know, whether it was a a head-on attack or a stern attack or like a snap-up attack, what speed the target was going, what speed we were going. And that was all figured out by it and said, okay, now I'm going to go now. And off it went. And the time of flight was actually variable and it would be set in at time of launch based on all those parameters. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah. So was it only the pilot that could launch the missile? We actually have a question from John Clark about this. And in the FA-18F and I believe even the F-14, the Wizzo or Rio could fire a missile, but was it only the pilot in the Voodoo? It was only the pilot, yeah. We couldn't do it without the nav giving us a lock. Right. Like we couldn't just manually launch an Air-2A. He could not launch it. Okay. What about air-to-surface weapons? And I realize this wasn't necessarily your forte, but I do believe we talked about it earlier with the one-way mission. Yeah, well, that was the F-101A with its uh, nuclear one nuclear bomb. But I really don't know an awful lot about that, honestly. Okay. Uh, we had no air-to-surface weapons on the Voodoo. Although okay. uh, I read somewhere that they actually used the AIM-4 Delta as an air-to-surface weapon or they tried using it. Okay. They, I say they, the Americans, against, you know, like 
heat generating targets like uh, sure. factories or whatever, I guess. But uh, that reminds me of what I used to say about the Falcon, actually, was that, What's that? it wouldn't hit a forest fire if it was locked onto it. <laughs> Was it that bad? Oh, well, yeah. It was the very first air-to-air missile developed after the Second World War. And you might think, oh, well, what happened to the air or the AIM-1 and the AIM-2 and the AIM-3? Well, there was, if there was an AIM-1, 2, or 3, it was such a short iteration that it never even became known. Let's say Hughes went through, you know, iterations and finally they said, okay, well, forget about those guys. We're just going to call this the AIM-4. And honestly, I don't think there was a 5, 6, 7, or 8 either because they replaced the AIM-4 on on the F-4 with the uh, AIM-9, with the early iterations of the Sidewinder. Perhaps all the other ones ended up as crumpled paper on the floor. Yeah. Well, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, the AIM-4 Delta was a very early weapon. Now that you mention it, I think, if I remember correctly, Robin Olds's book, Fighter Pilot, I think he was railing against it in Vietnam. Didn't they try to use it on the F-4, I want to say, and everybody kind of hated it? Yes. I read part of his rail, and it was absolutely bang on. <laughs> okay. It was a frustrating missile. They fired 54 of them off the F-4 in Vietnam and fed five kills. So, you know, you're talking about a PK less than one in 10, yeah. And they actually had a semi-active radar homing version of the AIM-4. The airplanes often carried like a couple of each. So I don't even know which ones were the ones that actually gave them kills. They might have been the radar homing ones, you know, not the uh, heat makers. Because like it had a pretty small warhead. It was 7.6 pounds Oh, gosh. You know, high explosive. And it was a uh, contact fuse on the leading edge of the wing okay. of the missile. So that's why it had a low PK, right? It was a Mach 3 missile, a range of about six miles, but it was really slow to cool. It would take about six or seven seconds for it to cool and acquire a target. So if, you know, if you're dogfighting, I mean, sure, I could take it up against a bear perhaps, you know, and I've got mm-hmm. the time to, you know, sit back right. and go doo-dee-doo, you know, waiting for it to cool, you know, but... But no, if I'm working against a MiG-21 or a MiG-19 or 17 or whatever, you know, it's like, no. Weapons have come a long ways, as have radars, obviously. I mean, this was back in the era where, like the F-4 and even the F-14, where you really needed that second crew member to operate the radar because of the technology that existed at the time. But still, you had to start somewhere. So let's move to performance. And anyone who can read on the internet about the performance, but tell me about your experiences. What was the highest you ever had one or the fastest? Or did you prefer to go low and fast? Or how many Gs? Well. I took one up pretty high right towards the end of Voodoo's life in Canada. What I found on the internet was that the service ceiling was 54,800 feet. Like I know on the um, details that you sent on, it was a little lower than that. And of course, the service ceiling is, is that's where you can actually fly it, right? But I wasn't flying it. I got to 54,300 feet. I was going over the top ballistic at a quarter G and just praying <laughs> that the engines didn't flame out on me. <laughs> It was kind of those been there, done that, got the t-shirt type of thing. You know, everybody, you know, has heard the old story. You know, I see this guy, there I was, uh, nothing on the airspeed indicator, but the manufacturer's name, you know? Well, (laughs) yeah, that's what it was. I had no airspeed on the indicator. It was like pegged at zero. Its top speed was um, Mach 1.72. Okay. And uh, just under a thousand knots true at 35,000 feet. When I went over the top ballistic there, I just kept it in full blower and at a quarter G until I was coming down vertical. Mm -hmm. And I got to uh, 
Mach 1.63 and a thousand knots true on the true airspeed indicator. Wow. So you figure you just get it all done in one flight? <laughs> yeah. Like, let's just go for the gold here. You know, it was pretty exciting. You know, I was like fixed on the altimeter because I knew it was going to take a long time to pull out of that dive. When you're heading towards the center of the earth that fast, yeah, it's going to take a while, especially in an airplane with such a high wing loading. You know, it doesn't exactly mm-hmm. turn on a dime. Yeah. But it was fun. And it was a fun airplane to fly. Flying low level was great because the power was there. Of course, the same with any airplane, right? Uh-huh. You could sustain a high G turn at low level in, in the Voodoo, the same as you know you could on the F-18. The higher you get, of course, now you got to start energy management. Yeah. But it was good at all altitudes. You know, it flew well. It really did. And it made the transition to supersonic without a whisper. You know, it was just like slipped through. It was smooth. Just got a little quieter, you know. And you can still maneuver it hard. Uh, you wouldn't stay supersonic for very long if you maneuvered it hard, of course. But, right. uh, you know, you're taking up a lot of airspace, too. <laughs> <laughs> 7.3 Gs. Uh, did I read that correctly? Ours were limited to 6.8. Okay. At that time, at least. And I flew it, like I say, at the end of its career in Canada. So, the, you know, that may have been a sort of an artificial life-enhancing right. G limitation. I really don't know. It was a big airplane, eh? It was about a yard longer than a DC-3. Oh, my. Big wingspan, 18 feet high. Yeah. I mean, the F-18 is no slouch either, of course, but it was a big airplane. We needed a pretty long ladder to get up huh. into the cockpit. How about, like, if you were to depart controlled flight, was it fairly forgiving, or would it get into some nasty behavior? It was really nasty. Oh, yeah? Uh, yeah, that's the pitch up. Okay. Let's talk about that. Yeah, sure. So it was notorious for pitch up. Like I said earlier, in the design phase, you know, they raised the horizontal stab to the top of the uh, vertical stab, and thinking that that was going to alleviate it. But when you got to a certain angle of attack, the wash over the wings would actually come down and drive the tail down and put you into, you know, what John Boyd described on the F-100 as a flat plate mm. situation. And you would just go from whatever speed you were at to nothing, you know, in, in about two ticks, right? If you were at high enough altitude and you timed it right, there was a procedure to try and recover from the pitch up. Unless you caught it, as soon as you realized the nose was lightening up and just, you know, push forward on the stick, you might be lucky enough to fly out. But if you actually got fully into a pitch up, there was no recovery except centralize everything and then drive the stick full forward. And I'm sort of going from memory here and forgive me because this is like 36 years ago. <laughs> and then deploy the drag chute, the landing drag chute oh, wow. at the peak of the pitch up so that it would drive the nose down, you know, into a just basically falling towards the earth. And once stabilized there, you would jettison the drag chute and put the power onto it and get flying speed again and then pull out of the dive. But you needed a lot of altitude to do that. And standing orders, I, I know I read in like in the USAF at least, like if they pitched up at fifteen thousand feet or below, it was like, don't even try. Just eject. You're done. Wow. But I honestly like sixteen or seventeen thousand feet, even twenty, man, like if you do recover, you're gonna be just skimming the treetops, you know? It's like oh boy. And there were guys who did it, you know, who were successfully recovered from the pitch up, I know, in Canada and probably in the States too. But there were also quite a few guys who had to jump out, and there were at least four that I know of who died as a result of pitching up the airplane at uh, low altitude. Was that always an issue for every model, or did they fix it in the later models? 
No, that was the way it was throughout its life. Basically, it was a design flaw. And what they did for it was they installed what was called a redundant limiter system. Redundant because it had two channels or whatever, you know. And it provided a 60-pound force on the stick. To go beyond the critical angle of attack, you had to exert more than 60 pounds of force on the stick. And of course, um, you know, when you got your hair on fire and you're looking over your shoulder or whatever, 60 pounds is nothing, right? And so that's why, you know, some guys did it. There were some guys, uh, there was at least one incident where the guys got into a jet wash situation, uh, like uh, vortices from an airplane ahead and it pitched them up and uh, they had to jump out. They were at low level. But uh, yeah, so there was that 60 pound force. And if you exceeded that, a steady tone started going off, a loud, steady tone to warn you that, hey, you're really <laughs> playing with fire here. So, Well, it's a dangerous business, especially some of this earlier technology, right? We have now the benefit of all these years and years of jet experience and aerodynamics that didn't exist back then. So yeah. a lot of these lessons are learned in blood. And it sounds like you said four friends that you personally knew that were killed in the F-101? Well, I didn't actually know them, but I, well, I knew a couple of them because okay. they were on squadron with my brother and I had met them. The other two guys uh, were on 425 squadron, which was the squadron I went to, but they were actually killed before I got there. So I had never actually met those guys. I just say that I know that those four guys in particular died because of pitch-ups. Wow. One on approach and one shortly after takeoff. All right. So as we talk about the strengths and weaknesses next, John, I guess we can jump right to the weaknesses. It sounds like that pitch up was a huge issue. That was its biggie for sure. It had a few. I mean, I heard a fighter pilot a long, long time ago say, your first operational tour, your first airplane is always going to be your sweetheart. You know, it's kind of like your first love, the first kiss, whatever, you know, and it's right. so true. I mean, you know, I loved the F-18. Fantastic airplane, you know, and like no comparison even to the Voodoo, but, but I still have this soft spot in my heart for the Voodoo because I just loved flying, you know, but it had a few little quirks, you know, like on one of them, you would hang the nose gear on takeoff. It accelerated so fast and the nose gear retracted forward. So as you're accelerating, you know, that acceleration is working against the forward fold. As you speed up, of course, the air load on the gear is is adding up fast too you know so you really had to get that gear handle up as soon as you broke ground that actually resulted in some guys you know coming up with some pretty like unhealthy habits there were guys who would just rely on the weight on wheel switch and uh, override the gear handle and raise it while they're rolling down the runway oh goodness and it doesn't take a, a rocket surgeon to imagine that what happened was they were at some place where the runway was a little bumpy and uh you know kind of got airborne before they got to takeoff speed, mm -hmm. now the gear just folds and they're fighting to try and keep it off the ground in ground effect at well under flying speed and did some pretty good work on the underbelly of the airplane. It was designed to fly fast and at treetop level, carrying 24 nuclear weapons. Today, it bristles with smart bombs and guided missiles. The B-1 bomber, called the bone by those who fly and maintain it, is the most heavily armed bomber ever built. Sleek and powerful, the bone remains a mainstay of American air power 50 years after its first flight. Hey everyone, this is Ken Katz, Call Sign Primetime, and my book, The Supersonic Bone, A Development and Operational History of the B-1 Bomber, tells the true story of this magnificent airplane. 
In this book, you'll read stories told to me by those who were there and see lots of great photos of the bone. Anyone with an interest in modern military aircraft will enjoy reading the supersonic bone. Available through the usual online retailers and aviation booksellers. Pick up your copy today. There was another guy whose habit was to, um, if he did hang the nose gear, he would just pull the throttles right back to idle and wait until he heard the nose gear go thunk, and then he'd just throw it right back into full afterburner. And that worked for him for uh, several years until uh, one day the maintenance guys inadvertently forgot to reset the landing gear circuit breaker. So he pulled it back to idle, waiting for that thunk, and that thunk wasn't coming because the circuit breaker was pulled. Oh, no. By the time he threw it back into afterburner, he was out of flying speed. They pitched up, and they both died. Oh. That was the one just after takeoff, you know? So, so like I say, you know, some bad habits there. But that weakness was sort of part of its strength. Like, its acceleration and its power were fantastic. Mm. When we were training on it, we had done training on the F-5 prior to going to the Voodoo. So, you know, he had flown a pretty fast airplane and, Mm -hmm. you know, high approach speed, not as high as the Voodoo, of course. But we did our first takeoff on the Voodoo in mill power, didn't use afterburner. And then the second one was like, you're doing it in afterburner, but it's like, you're just along for the ride. It's like, holy crap. You know, (laughs) you just can't imagine how fast it's happening. Like, you know, obviously, you know, you get used to it and all that very quickly and, you know, get comfortable with it or whatever, you know. What was a typical landing speed? Our approach speed was 175 plus gas, which if I remember correctly from your podcast on the F-117, that was what their approach speed was, you said. Yeah, I believe so. (laughs) Yeah. So for every um, five, no, every 3,000 pounds of gas, we would add another five knots. And we usually landed with about 3,000, around 3,000 pounds of gas because we went through it fast, you know, and it had a high fuel uh, flow rate. Yeah. So... For a while, they were having some trouble with the engines. A lot of guys ended up having to come back and, and land right away after takeoff. Oh. If you had to land single engine with a full load of takeoff, your approach speed was 205 knots. Oh, my. Yeah. And uh, the tire speed was like 180. And I think the drag chute speed was 185. But truth be told, the drag chute was fantastic. Like it was, oh, yeah. it was a fantastic drag chute. It never, never failed, you know. In fact, the uh, standard on landing was to, you know, as you got to the point where you're sort of rounding out, throttles to idle, drag chute deploy, and then touch down like a second or two later, you know. And it was smooth as silk, yeah. Yeah. Did it have a hook as well for long field cable or barrier? Yeah, it did, yeah. And not, like, only retractable uh, by the maintenance guys. It wasn't hydraulic. It was just on a spring, yeah. Mm-hmm. Like on your F-18. It was an emergency, essentially. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The situation you talked about on the takeoff, I think, happened to an F-22 Raptor up in Fallon a couple of years ago. I don't know if you heard about that one, but the pilot was out there for a Top Gun exercise and tried to get a little airborne, uh, get airborne a little early, I should say, and didn't quite have the flying speed and put the thing on the belly. So <laughs> that's always unfortunate. Yeah, especially on a big expensive airplane like that. So. Yeah, that sounds like grounds for a call sign review board. Oh, I'm sure it was, but I, yeah, I, I don't know that part. But And also, I agree with you. When I think back to my first squadron, I mean, I flew basically the F-18 all the way through mm-hmm. uh, because I got there in the 90s. But I look back at my first squadron, and I think besides the airplane, I think it's also just that 
it's the excitement because you've made it yeah. something you've worked for for so long. And, and then you're there and you're just so enthusiastic. And frankly, it's, I don't know, maybe this is an unsafe example, but it's a lot like when you meet someone and you're dating, right? You do things differently than when you've been married for a long time. <laughs> so I think there's a, an element of it's new, it's exciting, it's fresh. You always, like you said, it's your first love. And uh, I'm glad to hear that's true for you for the F-101 because it certainly sounds like sort of an enigmatic aircraft in a sense, but you did talk about some of the strengths. What was your favorite feature about it though? I guess it was the burner light. Yeah. It was a unique, uh, I don't think any other airplane had a, what was called a hard burner light. Like, you know, in the F-18, the F-16, uh, you select afterburner and it, you know, lights the different stages of afterburner in sequence, you know? So it's right. like, okay, you can feel the acceleration, but it's just an increase in acceleration. Well, the way the Voodoo burner light worked, as soon as you selected afterburner and it was selected by moving the throttles outboard sort of into a second detent kind of thing uh, so you'd go up to mill power and then you'd move them outboard and as soon as you move them outboard the afterburner fuel lines opened up and just started blowing fuel into the afterburners and you, i don't know if you've ever seen an afterburner fuel line they're like the size of fire hoses right and so at the same time it um, initiated ignition, mm -hmm. which was um, like there was this about 50 cc's of fuel that got lit and then basically thrown back into the burner cans. And there was always a two or three second delay. So mm -hmm. in that two or three seconds, those fire hoses are just blowing fuel into those burner cans. So when that little plug of fire comes, it's basically a controlled explosion. That's what gave the Voodoo its signature boom, boom, burner light. Okay. And I can tell you that kick in the ass first thing in the morning was like, if you weren't fully awake yet, you are now. Because the engines produced 16,900 pounds of thrust in full afterburner. But that kick had to be in excess of 20,000 pounds of thrust, I swear. Oh, wow. Like it was a, literally an explosion. We could not use the afterburners below minus 18 degrees Celsius because it was too hard on the engine mounts. Oh, wow. There's too much, like, just instantaneous thrust, you know? Better than a cup of coffee first thing in the morning, huh? You got that right. And that's what made the Voodoo the best air show airplane, like, at the time, at least. Mm -hmm. I don't know how many people I've talked to over the years, you know, and when I was flying for Air Canada, I'd get talking about stuff. And these guys who were younger than me, you know, they'd be going, oh, man, I, I can remember going to the air show in Toronto and I just couldn't wait for the voodoos to come by, you know. Like, the show was designed to always have the burner cans pointed towards the crowd when they lit them, you know. So it was just like boom, boom after, you know. And, and they never lit at the same time either. Mm -hmm. uh, it was always like one would light and then the other would light. And that made formation takeoffs challenging too. <laughs> I bet, yeah. Well, Stace, where would the public have seen or heard, or uh, apart from that air show story, but for the F-101 Voodoo, was there a demonstration squadron full of them at one point? Was it in the movies? Where would we have seen this? There was never a dedicated demonstration squadron, but the squadrons, for years, the squadrons would put together a demonstration team just within the squadron, you know, and that squadron would go around. Okay. It was always a four ship, okay. except right at the very end, uh, it was a two ship. They would go around to uh, the various air shows, you know, across the country here in Canada and in uh, mostly, well, in the States, mostly in the northern states, I think, like at the uh, Dayton International Air Show or... Uh, Wherever there was an air show and we got invited, then they would go. Okay. And we would often take, uh, you know, a voodoo down and just put it on static display at an air show as well. Of course. 
Did it make any appearances in any movies we might recognize? I uh, couldn't honestly say, you know, I, okay. not that I'm aware of. That doesn't mean that's, you know, <laughs> yeah. that they weren't. And I'm guessing or at least hoping there are some of these on display in various places at museums or on sticks in front of bases, maybe. There's all kinds of them here in Canada, I know, and in the States, too. I'm, I mean, if you Google it, there's a list. If you go on Wikipedia for the F-101, I think there's a link for the list of surviving voodoos and where they are, you know? Okay. And yeah, they're all over the place. There's, uh, I didn't go through the whole list, of course, but there's all kinds of them um, listed in the States as well. Yeah. All right. Fair enough. Now, I forgot to ask you, how many hours did you end up with in the voodoo? A little over 750, I think it was. Um, yeah. And when you think back of those flights, Stace, is there one particular flight that stands out in your mind or any particular great story you want to share with us before we wrap up? <laughs> There's a few in reality, but I don't have to you know, get into yeah. I mean, I intercepted a two bear deltas off the coast of Newfoundland, oh. um, which was really exciting because that was like, that was what it was all about. You know, like it wasn't wartime, but it was our operational mission to intercept, you know, mm -hmm. and that was really cool. We got video footage of, uh, you know, the voodoo and the bear and stuff. And oh, wow. That was really cool. I'll tell you a little story. It's not just one flight, but I'll tell you a little story. But we used to have some fun. Uh, when we were night flying in the wintertime, we'd often like knock off the training to get back to base with a little extra gas because uh, we'd be flying around and we could see the snowmobiles out on the fields because we could see these little lights going across the fields, right? Uh -huh. Now, the Voodoo had an ident light, right, for night identification, for night ID. Uh -huh. I was trying to find a reference to this, but I couldn't. But my memory tells me it was a 1.2 million candle power spotlight mounted on the left-hand side of the airplane, and the nav could turn it on and off. So if we were closing on an airplane at night, we would get into position, turn on the light so that we could see what type it was and, you know, read its registration, whatever. Mm -hmm. Well, if we, if we saw snowmobiles out, I'd turn <laughs> off all my external lights, all my navigation lights and anti-collision lights and everything. And I'd say to the nav, okay, when I say now, turn on the ident light. So I would arc in from behind the snowmobile and I'd say now, I knew exactly where the beam went, right? I just got used to it, uh -huh. right? So I put the airplane in a position where when he said now, that beam was going to light up that snowmobile. And as I carved around in the same direction as the snowmobile was going, I could keep it on him for about five or six seconds. And then I'd say now, and he'd turn it off, and we'd just disappear into the dark. It was like close encounters of the third kind, you know? We used to laugh and just say, man, like, how many UFO sightings are going to be reported tonight, you know? Exactly. Oh, it's just a, <laughs> such a hoot. <laughs> oh, that's great. Didn't they also put a similar spotlight on the side of the CF-18s? They did, yeah. And I think it was pretty much the same brightness. And oh, my gosh. Just a fixed light, you know? That's great. Well, Steve, I've got a couple listener questions here. Can I run them by you? We'll call it a lightning round. Yeah, please do. All right. Fair enough. Let's see. We'll start with one from Gerlandry, who asks, what were the countermeasures used on the CF-101? Were there any expendables or jamming equipment in those days? Oh, yeah. There was no expendables. So, you know, we didn't have chaff or flares. And there wasn't any jamming equipment. What there was was there was electronic counter-countermeasures okay. that the uh, scope wizard could use. So we had a data link antenna so that ground control intercept could guide us on the intercept, even if in a jamming environment. The antenna had two selections, like omnidirectional or just uh, rear-facing. Mm -hmm. 
So in a jamming situation, you know, we put our tail towards home, heading out, you know, to meet the bombers, and they could direct us in altitude, azimuth, speed, until, you know, the nav could actually pick up a target on radar. Once he locked on to the target, he had several electronic counter-countermeasures that he could employ to prevent, you know, a jammer from breaking his lock. A friend of mine who was a nav, uh, a scope wizard, said to me one time, a really good backseater in the voodoo is worth his weight is in gold. Anything less isn't worth the fuel that he displaces. <laughs> <laughs> this was a backseater saying this, right? That's right. Not a pilot. Yeah. yeah. The really good guys could dance through those ECCM measures at just the right kind of speed and rhythm to stay like just a, you know, a hair ahead of the jammers. Even like towards the end when the airplane was, you know, basically obsolete, you know, they could still make it work. You know, that was what we had. Yeah. Impressive. Okay. Chris Wanacott wants to know what was the longest duration mission you ever had and how far north did either you or the Voodoo go that you heard of? And I'll add to that. Was it air to air refuelable? It was not. We initially got the airplanes in 1961. They had an air refueling probe. But between 1970 and 1972, we got 66 Voodoo's initially. We had 56 left to give back to the USAF. And they replaced them with what was called the double IP models. It was an interceptor improvement program. Part of that program replaced the refueling probe with an infrared search and track system as well as a lot of the electronic counter-countermeasures, you know, that I just was talking about. So, no, we did not have the air refueling capability, which really would have been uh, a good thing to have always. But the longest mission we could do in the Voodoo was probably about two hours. My bear intercept uh, mission was a 1.8. We went close to 200 miles off the coast of Newfoundland, just inside, you know, our Canadian Air Defense Identification Zone. And we were stationed, you know, fairly far north in Quebec, not real far north. If you look at a map, you go, oh, that's not, you know, got all kinds of land up north of that. We couldn't go too far and be able to make it back to base, you know, uh, if we were going to be going and then performing intercepts, you know, and using afterburner to get up high and stuff like that, you're going fast, uh, right. you know, probably I'm going to say around three or 400 miles would be really stretching it you know you'd be starting to get worried you know if you're starting to turn and burn up there at all it didn't have super long legs because like it just had a really high fuel flow we carried like over thirteen thousand pounds of fuel internally hmm. and at low level in full afterburner we could burn it all in 12 minutes so <laughs> <laughs> sometimes you have to do that but yeah like you said the duration is really a function of your left hand how much of the afterburner you're using yeah uh, but also you know, the winds and the environmental conditions. So Yeah, oh yeah, exactly. Moving on, John Tumbles wants to know, how was the transition from advanced trainer to, at that time, frontline fighter like the Voodoo? So when you went, your own experiences here, Stace, uh, what was it like going from your final training to the Voodoo? Was that a big step? Well, as I mentioned, you know, like the takeoff was just like, holy crap. (laughs) And that was the thing I remember the most, like just the acceleration and speed of the airplane. Because like I say, I had flown about 100 hours on the F-5 after my wings training on the Tudor. So it was a pretty big change, but it wasn't as big a change as going from getting my wings on the Tudor to my F-5 course. Because again, it was like, okay, now you're a pilot. First thing we're going to do is just transition you to this different airplane type. And then we're going to teach you how to use that airplane 
in air to air and air to ground operations because everybody at that time went on the F5 course, whether we were going on the Voodoo or the 104 or the F5 operationally. So we sort of covered the full gamut. It was a handful of an airplane, but our job as the front seaters was probably a lot easier than the job of the backseaters. Getting to be a good scope wizard, I think, was probably more challenging than getting to be a good front seater in a lot of ways. Okay. Different missions, right? One is the actual piloting. The other is the employment, in a sense. Yeah. Yeah. Joe Kunzler asks, how did the voodoo fight, dogfight specifically? Well, uh, if we were against a type that was similar, like a, you know, a 104 or a 106, uh, huh? or even the F5, which really was a little more maneuverable than the Voodoo, but still had a very high maneuvering speed. Like the maneuvering speed of the Voodoo was about 425 knots. So we couldn't get our 6.8 G out of it unless we were doing that fast, right? Right. So we're carving a pretty big circle. When I got on the Voodoo, training on the Voodoo, they had really just sort of started introducing BFM and ACM training in preparation for the transition to the F-18. But as far as, um, you know, taking the sort of like God's eye view of the geometry of it, in other words, the big circles and stuff like that, mm-hmm. it fought the same as any fighter. You had to energy manage. That's right. You could pull hard and you do the, you know, the whole yo-yo thing and all that. The flaps were huge, just huge, like big barn doors. The limiting speed was like placarded at 250 knots and we're supposed to raise the flaps. Mm-hmm. But it had a what was called a 290 knot switch. So if you forgot to raise the flaps and you accelerated, the flaps would retract when you hit 290 knots. So us young fighter pilots are going, if there's a 290 knot switch, then it's safe to use them below 290, right? So we'd get out there and go into like a BFM or ACM training mission, uh-huh. and we'd just select the flaps down. And if we got slow enough, they'd give us all that extra lift, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, when my flight commander got wind of that, uh, he put the kibosh on it pretty quick. But really, you know, it was it was still fun to you know do BFM and ACM and to do DACT. We'd get out there and try and mix it up with F-15s, and they'd water our eyes, you know, and just oh just sort of go, yes. oh, okay, I get it. I can't wait till we get the F-18, you know. <laughs> yeah. Well, plus, if you were bigger than a DC-3, then I'm guessing it wasn't too difficult to keep track of you visually. Yeah, bingo. That's right. Well, when we'd go to Maple Flag, I remember one time I was at Maple Flag, and, and the guy debriefing it, he gets up to the whiteboard at the front, and he takes a black marker, and he draws this line across the whiteboard, and he goes, uh, anybody know what that is? Yeah, that's a voodoo at 40 miles. <laughs> Because <laughs> we pumped out black smoke and mill power that you, you can uh, see forever, you know? <laughs> All right. I want to be respectful of your time here. So just a couple more quick questions and then we'll wrap it up. Jim Gundog asks, did you ever fly the reconnaissance version? I think you said earlier that you did not. No, that's right. Canada never got any reconnaissance versions. Yeah, You mentioned the EF-101 earlier, and uh, we never really talked about it. In about 1982, when the Air National Guard retired all their voodoos, they leased that airplane to Canada. It was an airplane that they had developed. They put a Canberra EW suite in it and used it as a jamming platform, sort of like a bomber simulator, say a B-1-ski, you know, a high-speed bomber simulator with jamming capability. And they went around to, like, all the copper flag exercises and stuff like that and jamming exercises and stuff. And we operated that out of 414 Electronic Warfare Squadron here in North Bay from the time we got it in 82 until it was retired in 87. Oh, wow. It was a formidable jammer. Yeah, I bet. Okay. 
Brock Kreckelberg says he's always been intrigued by the voodoo, particularly the fast speed of it. He wants to know, was the speed more of an advantage down low or up high? Well, <laughs> speed's always an advantage, right? Speed is life, yeah. right? right? You know, up high, yeah, it was an advantage, I guess. I mean, it, you know, our adversaries were bombers, you know, in the sense uh, what our role was. So if the bombers were up high, then, yeah, we wanted to be able to go fast up high. If we got caught down low, we could accelerate really fast down low and then snap and gain altitude, you know, super fast. And that was one of the tactics we actually practiced was a snap attack, you know, from low altitude to high altitude. And then, you know, after the simulated weapons launch, the escape maneuver was to roll inverted and just pull as hard as you could in full afterburning to get your nose down below the horizon, you know, and, and away from where you've just launched off this nuke sort of thing, you know. And we got real good at instrument flying because we'd do that in all weather at night, you know, and just rolling and turning and burning. And thank goodness the airplane had a really good attitude indicator. <laughs> Thank goodness also that we never actually had to do that. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right. Jeff Fatkin says, why was the F-101 so prone to inertial roll coupling? Was there any maneuvering restrictions into effect? I don't remember hearing about that. Was that an issue? It was. Yeah. I think one of the pitch-ups, at least one of the pitch-ups we had was a guy who might have been doing an air show and he was doing consecutive rolls. The roll rate on the airplane, full deflection roll rate was like 720 degrees per second. Oh, like the A4. Yeah. And, and the F5 as well. And I think the F18 had something real close to, I mean, it's just like fighter airplanes are designed to roll and this yeah. thing rolled really fast, but it didn't roll right around its horizontal axis. Uh. It was kind of like the seeker head on a, on a heat seeking missile. It mutated a little bit. Mm -hmm. So like you were kind of doing a little tiny barrel roll around your own axis every time you rolled. If you rolled a second time, it just got bigger. And a third time, now you're, it's so big that it just takes you, you know, whips the nose off and the tail goes down and, and you depart control flight. There was a restriction. We were not allowed to do more than one consecutive roll, full deflection, at least. Just like the F-18. Yeah. Maybe any fighter airplane, if you roll it too often, too hard. Well, it's going to get a little off kilter. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. In the U.S., you couldn't roll more than 360 degrees without stopping. And I think there was a relatively famous video of some test pilot that was doing that and ended up departing at a relatively low altitude. So, mm, yeah, but saved it. So anyway, oh, wow. all right, wow. three more. Tom McDowell. Let's see. There was a lot of controversy surrounding the nuclear armament of the Voodoos. How effective did the pilots believe these weapons would have actually been? We figured they were going to be incredibly effective. I didn't know at the time that its lethal radius was estimated to be less than a thousand feet. Right. And a lot of us actually kind of figured, man, if we go up firing off air two A's, if we come back at all, we're going to come back glowing, you know? <laughs> but in fact, that was not the case. But we had a lot of confidence in that weapon. If, like if we could launch it, we knew it was going to take down the bomber. I don't think I mentioned earlier that I think they only fired one live Air 2A in test over Yucca Flats, not off a of Voodoo, but off another type of airplane. I can't remember what it was now. The crew of the airplane that fired it had absolutely no exposure to radiation. It was fired at about 20,000 feet, as I recall. Okay. And they actually had volunteers like standing on the ground underneath where it was going to explode in their summer <laughs> uniforms, you know, duty. And they had very, very little, very, very little exposure. 
The most exposure was they had guys fly through the location of the explosion 10 minutes later, Mm -hmm. and those guys received the highest dose of radiation. So the question was like, did we have a lot of confidence in it? Yes, I answered that. There was something more, was there? I think it sounds like the air-to-surface Mark 7 might have been a slightly different story, but... Oh, it was the controversial aspect of it. Sorry. Yeah, I wanted to address that because it was very controversial. In fact, it took extra time for the government of Canada to agree to having nuclear weapons in Canada. We had declared ourselves nuclear-free, right? Those weapons always belonged to the Americans. And in Bagotville, Chatham, and Comox, which were the three bases that still had operational voodoo squadrons when I flew them, there were weapons bunkers, and they were guarded by uh, United States Air Force Service Police. Okay. So we had a full-time detachment of uh, USAF on the base, uh, strictly because we had their nuclear weapons. There was a funny story about a general inspecting the uh, weapons depot in one of the bases. I don't don't know whether which one it was, but he's talking to uh, this guard at the entrance to the weapons bunkers. And he says, uh, Sergeant, what would you do if I ran past you towards that weapons bunker? And he said, sir, I'd call the service police. And the general didn't really like that answer. He says, why the hell would you call the service police? He says, I'd call the service police to come and get your dead ass out of here, sir. (laughs) (laughs) And that was the right answer, you know, like, I'm glad uh, that mostly ended by the time I started serving, because it sounds like a real not fun uh, endeavor, both from just the training and the storage, but also the employment. Yeah. So, all right. A couple more here. Joseph Grisala asks, uh, the voodoo was utilized for many roles with many variants. What role was it best suited for? I can take this one, Stace. You said sure, as yeah. a bomber fighter. And when you said that, I actually had to think for a second. And what you meant was, in other words, a fighter taking down bombers, not a fighter bomber like the F-4. Right. Because you didn't have any conventional weapons. So, okay. No. And then the last question is from Nigel Creel. Okay, so it's about the pitch-up. Was there a warning prior to the pitch-up in the transonic range? Well, the subsonic, transonic, supersonic, it made absolutely no difference on the airplane. It was all the same. Like the aerodynamics, the way it flew, it didn't matter. And it was the same. If you pulled beyond that stick force, 60-pound stick force, preventing you from exceeding your angle of attack, if you pulled beyond that, there was that tone that came up. And from descriptions of guys who had it happen to them, they said, you know, you could feel the tail, the nose would start to get light. In other words, it's it's sloppy. It's like, what's going on kind of thing, you know? Like, how come it's not doing what I really want it to do? And that was probably like the last warning before it would go into pitch up. Okay. But there was no bumpiness, like, yeah. And that's what I was going to fall back with was Nigel's question was, is there any substance to the description of the transonic being bumpy? So. All right. Well, that's it for the listener questions. You've been a good sport, Stace. I really appreciate it. What's the future for you, Holt? Did you say you are twice retired now from the Royal Canadian Air Force, but as well uh, Air Canada? That's affirmative. Yeah. I'll be 65 next month. And I decided to go uh, six months before mandatory. So I've been retired since the beginning of August. Uh, My daughter lives here in North Bay. She's a a family doctor and she's got two kids. So my, you know, two of my grandkids are right here in town. And uh, like, I've got a cottage that's only a 45 minute drive away and I'm going to live the life of leisure, man. (laughs) 
You got yourself a good rocking chair? Yeah, no, I'm not doing that. Like I mentioned to you, I'm still playing hockey twice a week. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, having a blast doing that, you know, and uh, just keeping real busy with uh, all kinds of projects. And uh, if I run out of projects, I'm going to get into some volunteering, maybe, uh, maybe some literacy or whatever. Fantastic. Yeah. All right. Well, and you promised us you would come back to the Stace call sign, but again, that's not too imaginative. But I, what I really wonder is if you got Stace out of John Stacy, what did your brothers get? Yeah, well, yeah. my brother, who was a pilot, was also Stace, but oh. most of the time we were on different squadrons, right? But when he came to Germany, I had already been there. So I, I had call sign seniority on squadron. It was a tiger squadron. It was the 439 Sabretooth Tiger Squadron. So um, the guys held a call sign review board for him. And as the CO of the squadron, they called him Hobbs after Calvin and Hobbs, little tiger, uh, yeah. stuffed tiger Calvin had. When I was on the voodoo, the whole call sign thing wasn't a big deal, at least, you know, for us up in Canada. It was most guys just sort of had nicknames, you know, like most of them really were just kind of nicknames from their last names, you know, whatever. Right. And sometimes guys get call signs that are derivatives of their last name. I met a guy in the USAF or no, it was in the Navy down at Fallon, I think it was, who his call sign was purple because his last name was Hayes. That's right. Once we got into the F-18, of course, uh, and the movie Top Gun came out, you know, and now everybody's got to have a call sign. And usually guys got call signs because of some sort of buffoonery, you know, or, uh, or mistake they made. Thank goodness we weren't doing that type of thing when I was on the voodoo because I'm sure I would have got saddled with something after I tore the landing gear off my voodoo uh, landing short in a snowstorm. That was a, actually a pretty good story too, but I, you know, I didn't want to try and get into too many stories, but yeah, I just landed short, hit a, a really hard snowbank and just ripped the main gears right off the airplane and landed on the nose wheel and the burner cans. If we'd been doing call signs back then, I'm sure I would have gotten nailed with something like wheels or skid or, or even worse stories skid mark or something like that you can imagine going through life with a call sign like skid mark <laughs> yeah so i just had stace and some of the guys were bound and determined to uh, give me a new call sign but i guess i just kind of kept my nose clean enough that they never came up with uh, you know either when i did something stupid i kept it secret or or i didn't do too many things that were too stupid so i was quite yeah. proud of the fact that uh, i never got saddled with a you know a call sign it sounds like that landing probably should have earned you one, but uh, good thing you avoided it. Yeah. Did you end up riding that out or did you try out the seat? We were below the uh, seat envelope uh, at that point. Oh. It, it was like a 50 feet above ground uh, and no sink rate type of seat. Uh, so oh, okay. we, uh, we rode it out. Like I got the drag chute out and we came to a stop about 7,000 feet down the runway. The fire trucks, you know, came out and everything. Was your scope wizard yelling at you? <laughs> I think he was a little bit, um, what's the word? He was a little in shock. As a matter of fact, as we were rolling down the runway, like when I first touched down on the nose wheel and the burner cans, we were like, it was about 10 degrees nose up. And that's what we used to land at. We'd keep the nose wheel off the ground, touch down on the mains, let the chute do its thing. But we would also aerodynamic brake, you know, mm -hmm. about 10 degrees nose up and get down to about a hundred knots and then lower the nose. Well, I went to lower the nose. <laughs> it wasn't going anywhere. So at that point I looked back and I went, Oh, my wings are a little too close to the ground here. So I told the backseater our standard thing was when we'd land from a mission, we'd call up our operations on the radio uh -huh. and tell them whether we were green serviceable or red 
unserviceable for and for whatever reason, you know, so that the maintenance guys would be prepared. So I said, you better call our cops and tell them we're red for landing here. But he did not see the humor in that. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe later, once he's, his safety is assured, he might see the humor in that. But yeah, oh he flew with me again anyway. So that was good. Uh, that's good. That's good. Stace, I should have squeezed this in earlier, but I'll just, as a fadeaway jumper here, ask you, when I think about the F-101, as you described it, it sounds like a very early aircraft as far as capability and, and all that. And we didn't really even talk about the cockpit, but for the pilot up front, I'm guessing it was pretty much mostly steam gauges and dials. Did you have any displays? Yeah, all yeah. steam. Yep, absolutely. Okay. So compare for me quickly that to the FA-18 later that you're flying by yourself with the DDIs and MPCDs and heads-up display. I didn't even ask you about the Voodoo. Did it have a heads-up display? No, just had that F-scope and it wasn't a heads-up thing. It was like wow. just at the top of the shroud kind of thing. So you really had almost a, what, 60-year difference of jets in a sense, maybe not quite, but the point being is you flew the most rudimentary jet effectively. And then almost the, well, yeah, I was at the time that up to date cutting edge. Yeah. What was that like? Was that a pretty enormous swing in the pendulum, if you will? Well, it, it was different. For one thing, the roles were different, you know, like the F-18 was multi-role. So I was doing, you know, air to ground and, and stuff. And the weapon systems in the F-18 were so much more advanced and reliable. And we'd do air-to-air gunnery and strafing and, and all that sort of stuff. I was probably really comfortable flying the Voodoo within less than a year, let's say. Okay. But I wasn't really comfortable flying the F-18 until maybe two years. Oh, wow. And I, when I say comfortable, I don't mean just flying the airplane. The, the F-18 was a dirt simple airplane to fly, like to take off and land or whatever, you know, mm-hmm. go from point A to point B, right? Once you got used to the cockpit layout, but employing it, you know, with so many sensory inputs, your radar, and then uh, there's all your weapon systems and there's your, uh, you know, raw gear and, you know, the roll, you're down low, 200 feet off the treetops doing 450 knots and keeping track of three wingmen or whatever. It was much more demanding in terms of like a multitasking airplane. So it took me a lot longer to get to the point where I really felt like, yes, I can use this airplane properly now, you know, Hmm. whereas the Voodoo was that much simpler. Like you say, it was a simpler time, you know, steam driven gauges and all that sort of stuff. Well, but it was also a more consequential time based on the role that we talked about today with nuclear tipped rockets and bombs and various things. And yeah. so um, I'm glad the Cold War never went hot. So, Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. The uh, F-101B never fired a shot in anger. Thank goodness. All right, Stace. Well, you've been a good character and very generous of your time today. Thanks very much. On behalf of your countrymen, I want to thank you for your 25 years of service and 3,500 flight hours, almost all in ejection seats. That's formidable. (laughs) And uh, what have you got to wrap up today? Oh, geez. I don't know. Uh, (laughs) We've said it all. Um, It's been a slice. I'm really, really happy uh, you know, that I got to do this. I'm thrilled and um, humbled, you know, to be uh, talking to you, Jello, and talking about my experiences on the F-101 and, and in the Air Force. And just, I had a fantastic career, no regrets whatsoever. And I left, you know, on a pretty high note, you know, so uh, it was all good. All right. Well, that was amazing. Thanks again to Stace for joining us. Bruce, that was pretty awesome, I thought. What did you think? Yeah, it was. I was really <laughs> interested, though, that the uh, F-101 carried two 
MB-1 nuclear rockets. Ah. The F-106 carried only one. Hmm. Stacy was very pleased with the nukes. We carried the same nuke in the F-106. He carried two of them. But it had a uh, 1.5 kiloton warhead. I didn't like being near that thing. I really didn't <laughs> like the nukes. They had a lot of problems that went with them. Mm-hmm. So while he loved the nukes, count me out on that one. Well, I'm with you. Hey, so as I listened to that interview again, even though I lived through it, of course, but I jotted down some notes in re-listening. The first thing is, you know, modern day, I don't know of too many siblings that either fly together or in the same squadrons. Was that a thing back in the 60s and 70s, even maybe here in the States? No, I didn't know of any of my fellow pilots who had siblings flying. Okay. My commanders had some very interesting stories, but maybe I'll tell them at a later time, unless, (laughs) except maybe in the idea of reconnaissance. I'll tell one when we get to the reconnaissance version. Well, let's just jump to that now, because I was really surprised to hear that the voodoo saw action in Vietnam and even the Cuban Missile Crisis, and gosh, yeah, where else? Actually, it flew in Taiwan. In 1959, the U.S. gave some RF-101s, the reconnaissance versions, to the Taiwanese. And Taiwan flew them against communist China as low-level, high-speed reconnaissance. They called it Century Dog was the program. Okay. And they flew RF-101s over communist China at low altitude, high speed, and got some fabulous pictures. I was in on a debriefing of one of the F-101 missions. He had come back with a photo. He's coming over this communist airbase, and you can see all these MiGs lined up in a row, and the pilots are running toward their planes. (laughs) as this F-101 is zipping along right over them. Mm -hmm. You know darn well they weren't in any position to catch that 101. So the 101 was very fast and very well used for reconnaissance. Then in 1962, during the Cuban crisis, and I lived through that and I was very much involved in it, but I was up in Alaska at the time, Okay. The F-101, the RF-101, played a pivotal role. We kept hearing that the Russians were moving nuclear missiles into Cuba, and we didn't have proof of it. So they sent a U-2 over, and the U-2 got pictures of what looked like ballistic missiles, but it was flying too high to get really good pictures. So they sent an F-101, RF-101, down low to take pictures of these Russian missiles. And this was a very hazardous mission because it was well supported with anti-aircraft. 
And the RF-101 came in through a whole bunch of anti-aircraft fire, took the pictures of the Russian missiles and flew them back to Florida, where he'd come from. From there, they were rushed to Washington and then to the United Nations. And our ambassador to the United Nations, Dulles, showed those pictures to the United Nations as proof of the Russian missiles that had been placed in Cuba. They were excellent pictures. Mm. There was no doubt about what was going on. (laughs) The Russian ambassador tried to talk around it, and John Foster Dulles pushed him and said, just, these are it. Do you deny that you have put missiles in Russia? And the Russian ambassador just hemmed and hawed and did not answer. That was the beginning of the Cuban Missile Crisis. I see. So the RF-101 was key there. Then in Vietnam, the F-101, RF-101, was used extensively to get target BDA, we call it, bomb damage assessment after our strikes. It was critical. It was about the only recon plane that could go fast and low and get those excellent pictures. Mm. Unfortunately, this flying fast and low more than once, the North Vietnamese learned that shortly after the bombing raid, Everybody would sit around and wait by their guns, uh-huh. waiting for the RF-101 to come over and take the pictures. Okay. So by the time the RF-101 came by, everybody was waiting for them. Mm. We lost a lot of RF-101s during Vietnam, but it served the country very well as a reconnaissance airplane. Well, that is outstanding. So, dear listeners, you get not only uh, information on an important aircraft, but its impact on our history as a nation and uh, global experiences. Uh, That's pretty amazing. Bruce, I want to shift gears a little bit because I might have been sort of micro-napping, as I sometimes call it, through the whole pitch-up discussion. What was the point of that in the first place? Is that just a problem if you get to too slow and too high of an angle of attack or something along those lines? Or what caused pitch-up in the first place? Oh, the pitch-up, which we call the Wahoo Maneuver. (laughs) There were many articles written about it. I understood it to be the problem that if you take a F-101, it has a high tail. The location of the wing in relation to the tail is critical. It had a high horizontal stabilizer. I'll call that the tail. The horizontal stabilizer is what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. In a high angle of attack, the burble from the wings would stream back and hit the horizontal stabilizer. And this mixed air going over the horizontal stabilizer would cause it to lose lift suddenly. Okay. It would lose lift on the tail, therefore the nose would pitch up and the plane would go completely out of control, a very dangerous situation. 
Sounds like it. I mean, if the procedure was, if you had that at 15,000 feet or below, just immediately to eject, boy, that is a problem. So like I said, I, I thought it had something to do with that, but I couldn't remember if it were high speed or low speed. And I understand now the concept. I appreciate that. Okay. And then lastly, for notoriety, I learned that the F-101 also made a cameo in the movie from 2000 called 13 Days, starring Kevin Costner. And it was also in the 60s TV series, My Three Sons. Yeah. Do you know it from anywhere else, Bruce? Yes, it was in the movie, The Russians Are Coming, which was a comedy. Okay. But in the very end of it, the uh, whole movie was about a Russian submarine that accidentally runs aground on uh, Nantucket in Massachusetts. Okay. And the Russians are stuck. They go into the town anyway. The Russians, <laughs> in the final thing, they make friends with the people in the town. So the Russians are afraid that we're going to attack them at the end. The people, to protect the Russians from our air attack, go out in their own boats from Nantucket and surround the Russian submarine as it's trying to go out. They had to wait for the high tide to where they could get out far enough so they could submerge. So the people were protecting the Russian submarine from air attack, and the air attack was our F-101s that came over. Okay. Well, it looks like that movie came out in 1966. I've never heard of it, so I'll have to check it out. Very funny. All right, Bruce, what else do we need to know about the F-101 voodoo that we haven't talked about? We've covered a lot of it. This is one of our longer episodes, actually. I think we got it. All right. Excellent. Well, thanks once again to Stace for explaining all of it and Bruce for you adding some flavor to it as well. As we transition then to our wrap-up portion of the show here, as always, we'd like to thank our show supporters and we name the higher tier ones over on Patreon. That includes our air bosses, Arnie Erickson and Helen Cardinal. I want to remind the listeners that the views expressed in this presentation are the personal views of the hosts and our guests and do not necessarily represent the position of the Department of Defense or its components. So that'll do it for this week. Bruce, thanks for lending us your experience, and I plan on uh, welcoming you back next time for the F-102 Delta Dagger. What do you say? I look forward to it. All right. Outstanding. And to all you listeners, we'll see you in about 10 days. Be well. Happy New Year. And we'll see you next time here on the Fighter Pilot Podcast. So long. You've been listening to the Fighter Pilot Podcast brought to you by BBR Productions. Got a question for the show? Email us at questions at fighterpilotpodcast.com or leave a message on our listener line at 877-MACH-101. That's 877-622-4101. Be sure to follow us on your favorite social media platform and check out our website, fighterpilotpodcast.com. For exclusive content and to help support the show, check out our Patreon page. Thanks for listening. Thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. 
To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran.